From the small towns to the big cities. We bring you the stories that matter. This is. This is. This is the Our American Stories podcast. This is Lee Habib, the host of the Our American Stories podcast. Today, we bring you the story of how a 19-year-old single mom built the largest female-owned trucking company in America. Also, we'll bring you the story of a 21-year-old college student who sued PepsiCo when they didn't give him the $30 million fighter jet he thought he was owed. And finally, we'll bring you the story of how beloved Hollywood star Clark Gable went off to fight voluntarily in World War II. And folks, we can't wait to bring you these fantastic stories from our team. They work hard day and night to bring you stories from the people that you don't often get to hear, but you should. Someone once said, a listener actually, that America is the star of our American stories, and it's dead on. And so too are the American people. And the we the people matter to us, those three words in the Constitution. We're doing this to support you so you can hear these stories about a country you love, one that may not be perfect, but is good and great. If you'd like to support us and all that we do here, go to OurAmericanStories.com and go to the Giving tab. We are a 501c3 nonprofit, and the work we do is not free. Any help, any support would be greatly appreciated. Join our team in the work we do and become a part of all that's going on here. We appreciate both one-time gifts and monthly gifts. It's for you and through you that we tell these beautiful stories. And now, Aubrey brings you the story of Marcia Taylor, a woman you'll be glad to have met. I got married at 16, and I had my first child when I was 17, and my next child at 18, and my next child at 19. So I ended up with three babies, and finally my aunt told me to call the last one caboose and let it be the end. You're listening to Marcia Taylor, likely the first woman to own and operate a trucking company, Bennett International Group. But before she was a leading businesswoman, she was a young mom of three babies, growing a startup business into what is now one of the biggest trucking companies in America. I grew up in Southern Illinois on a small farm with my mother and father and brother that was seven years younger than I was. My mother always had a big garden and she had a lot of chickens and I would help her can. And my dad always had a lot of wheat and soybeans and corn. So we'd help him in the fields and it was a great way to grow up. When I was 14, my father, he had been sick and he just uh, got up and just passed out. And I mean, he just, right then he just died and left my mother and I and, and my little brother Duane with a farm. It was just a devastating time for me. I ended up being the kind of the responsible one in the family. I married really early. I think I was being a little rebellious. My husband and I lived on the farm and he worked on the railroad and I was a housewife. Neither one of us was really ready to be married nor ready for the responsibility that having three small children. And my husband started drinking and it just become a very, very abusive relationship, both physically and mentally. I knew I was going to have to try to get away to get out of that situation. Some of the people in our neighborhood had bought the rights to this small trucking company in Georgia. I'd said, well, you know, I'd like to go to Georgia. And uh, so they, there was an opening and I jumped at the chance. I knew nothing about trucking. I, I mean, literally nothing. But I knew it might be a way for me to get the children and to move to a different location. We loaded everything we had up with a truck and a 40-foot van, and all of our belongings took up about 10 feet of that van, and we moved to Georgia and moved into a mobile home and was able to, at that point, file for divorce. I was working, and I had children were like the fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. Actually, the man that I went to work for, we ended up getting together 
and uh, we ended up getting married. My mother had not been in the best of health. We called her and asked her if she wanted to come to Georgia and live with us and help with the children so I could really focus on work. So we worked really hard and in 1974, we had the opportunity to buy this little small trucking company that had 15 trucks and 30 trailers and we only had like $500 in cash to be able to start this business, but they sold it to us on credit. In order for us to make payroll, I would do all the billing on Wednesday, get everything billed, and one of us would take all of our invoices and meet one of our drivers halfway. Our driver would pick up the invoices, take them to our customer, and he would process them write a check, we'd do the same thing, the driver we'd meet just halfway, pick up the check, deposit it in the bank and so I could make payroll on Friday. Our customer helped save us all through that time by getting our invoices processed so I could make payroll. I don't think you could start a business with $500 and do what we did now because of the way that the industry is and the way that people want to pay your invoices. Now, customers want to wait 60, 120 days before they pay you. It was a difficult time, but I look back and it was, it was a good time. We were working to build this company together. Marcia was finally getting the business on solid footing until the ground was taken out from under her. My husband, J.D., uh, was a heavy smoker and it was really affecting his health. We had gone to Houston, Texas to look at a rail site for one of our customers. And while we were there, I saw this billboard and it was advertising a stop smoking clinic. He knew he needed to stop smoking because it was causing him to begin to have emphysema. So we went to this uh, smoking clinic that was attached to one of the large hospitals. They injected him in the nose and in his ear and in his throat. And we went home, and the middle of the next week, we were at work, and, and my husband said, you know, I, I, I don't feel well, I think I need to go home. So he went home, and whenever I got there, I went into our bedroom to check on him, and he was just burning up. So I said, I think we need to take you to the emergency room, because he never got sick. So they started checking him, and his blood pressure kept dropping. So uh, they came and they said, well, I think we're gonna take him up to intensive care. We just wanna see what's going on. The next morning at about six o'clock, they came out and they said, I want you to prepare yourself because I don't think he's gonna make it. And I was just like, what? Well, how could this be? He was in the hospital for three days to where he, his body just started shutting down. Through those injections, he had developed a gram-negative bacteria. They had injected this bacteria into his body. They had to first find out what kind of injections he had gotten, which really wasn't much of anything. Then they had to discover what this bacteria was, and, and they, they just couldn't stop it. And they took him into surgery, and he basically coded in surgery, and he died the next morning. So all at once, I was just kind of left with this business that we had finally had gotten a bank that would take a chance on us and had gotten a small credit line. And now this is back in the 80s and there really wasn't any women that was in the, that was in the transportation business. Certainly nobody running a trucking company. And I was really worried that the bank would call our note because they wouldn't trust, you know, a woman. And I have three small children that I still have to take care of and my mom. But, you know, I just had to put all my faith in God that whatever was supposed to happen, He would see me through. My drivers all just kind of gathered around. There was 30 people that worked here at that time. And everybody just said, look, we can do this. We just went to work. I bet I worked, I don't know, 60, 70 hours a week. It took a lot because we're not in a business that's an eight to five business. You don't turn the responsibility off whenever you go home. Through her faith, the support of her employees, and her dedication to the company, Marcia pulled through. But her children were still small, and her success came at a cost. I feel guilty that 
I didn't get to spend more time with my children when they were growing up. I wish I could go back and change that. I mean, my mom was there, thankfully, and she always made sure that there was a meal on the table, that they got to the ball games, that they got wherever they needed to get to. But I feel like I missed a lot. Now I've gotten to work with my children now, you know, and so I'm very fortunate in that way. When they were small, they would come to work with me. They always had to be involved. When they got sick, they slept on a cot behind my desk. They really learned it from the ground up. It's just been a great blessing to me to be able to work with my family and children. Sometimes they'll say, well, you know, it's not always easy to work with your mother. And I'll say, well, you know, it's not always easy to work with your kids either. But even my grandchildren, I don't get to spend near as much time with my grandchildren as I'd like to, even though I have four of them that work here. It's had a lot of ups and downs, but God's always seen me through. We started to say, what could be our specialty? What can we do that, that limits our competition? Our niche is things that are a little bigger, a little heavier, that require tarps, that require a little bit more work to haul. Anything that's too large to be um, haul that needs to be driven, you know, we'll put a driver in it, you name it. So today we're made up of 14 different companies that all do different types of transportation. We have about 3,200 drivers and owner-operators and about 400 different offices. We're an international company. We do a lot of ag equipment, air conditioners, rockets. We do a lot of work for the government. One of the newest ventures that we've just gotten into is AA&E, which is ammunition, explosives, so forth. There's only 17 carriers allowed to move AA&E. We just did the Mercedes-Benz Stadium and uh, the big Falcon that's out in front. We deliver that Falcon. We're international. We um, import and export, and we bring a lot of wine in from Argentina. We export a lot of sweet potatoes. We move a lot of manufactured housing, and when there's some sort of a national disaster, if they require manufactured housing, that we'll get involved with FEMA to help move those units. In fact, they're the largest mover of manufactured housing, better known as mobile homes, in America. They're the largest mover for the United States Department of Defense, and they're also the largest driveway company in the country, meaning their pickup truck drivers deliver upwards of 450 campers and RVs across the country every single week, and it doesn't end there. We're very involved in oil and gas and do a lot with the wind industry. We move big windmills that are being installed in all the wind farms, both by hauling and through our crane and rigging. Four years ago, we started a crane and rigging company. We have cranes up to 900 ton, and so that's a very niche market. I think God has just always led us where we needed to go. Nearly 71% of all freight moved in the United States goes on trucks. Without truck drivers, our economy would come to a standstill. Yet the American Trucking Association figures that 60,000 more drivers are needed by trucking companies. And that number is predicted to reach 100,000 in just the next few years. The trucking industry is always up and down. I mean, there's always a lot of things going on, but probably one of the, the most difficult things is finding uh, really qualified drivers that want to get into this industry. When you do have a driver come to you, you want them to enjoy working for you and you want them to stay. But our retention rate is about 39%, which is really very good. A lot of companies' retention rate is over 100%. That means her competitors are losing all of their drivers for the year, and then some. It's a tough business, but we've got a lot of drivers that's been with us for a lot of years. They get used to where they like to run, they get used to what they like to do, and you know, they stay with us. Our business is usually one of the leading indicators of what's happening in the economy. We're usually the first to see it pick up and the first to see it slow down. Over the years, there's been numerous times that we weren't sure if you know we were gonna have enough money. Whenever the bottom fell out of everything in the 80s, we had made like a million dollars at that point in time, which was a lot of money for us. 
and it's like the recession hit and it's just like everything just stopped. In two months, we had lost the million we had made and another million. We never really wanted to lay anybody off. We worked some flexible hours and people that could would maybe take one day off and then some of the people that couldn't afford to take a day off, somebody else would give them their day. And so we were able to make our way through it by not having to lay anybody off. And in the 2008 recession? Same thing. You just kind of buckle in and you just manage your balance sheet. And one thing about our business, another reason I say God is so good, is because we do different types of things. It has always seemed like when one thing was really slow or bad, one piece of the industry, something else was good. When things were so slow, we ended up getting a huge contract that saw us through. We've always come out of recessions and done well. Last year was one of the best years we have ever had in our industry, simply because I think there was so much pent-up business out there. You could just feel it. We did over a half a billion dollars. We're pretty excited about that. That was a big milestone for us. With such a big milestone in the books, does Marcia, who is now 74, have any intention of retiring soon? Like most successful business owners, absolutely not. This is my family. There's people that's been here for many, many years. I can't imagine not being here. About three or four years ago, I guess, my kids kind of said, you know, we're tired, we've been working a lot, and they've been working a lot of years. They said, we're ready to retire. And I said, you know, I, okay, we'll think about maybe selling off some, keeping some. But then I thought, it's not fair to my grandchildren. They work here, this is a good place for them, and we just need to work as long as we can. Also, I firmly believe that you should get up every day and work to make a difference. I feel like I can do that here. And not just through her business, but through her foundation, Marcia has made a difference. About five years ago, we started a foundation based on Christian values where we would give back 10% of our earnings each year. One of the things we do is we have a friend that runs a camp in um, Old Town, Florida. It's a Christian camp. And we take a week, every year we call it Camp Bennett, and we sponsor employees' children or grandchildren. And then we also sponsor kids that just maybe wouldn't have the opportunity to go to the camp. Every year there's usually like 40 or 50 kids will be saved and several they'll be baptized. That's one of the things that we enjoy. We just sponsored several wreaths across America. We put 15,000 wreaths on the graves at Andersonville a Cemetery. From back during the Civil War, maybe they're old, old gravesites that there's nobody left that remembers those gravesites. Drivers will deliver wreaths to the cemetery and get people wreaths placed on these gravesites. It's, it's a very moving and it's a wonderful way to honor some of our veterans. We try to use this company to help show Christian love. I definitely feel that this is a ministry. It allows us to reach people that we might not reach otherwise both through our foundation and then just every day. I had a uh, vice president of safety, rough guy. Sometimes his language wasn't the best. Just being here, being in this environment, us saying prayers before meetings, ended up, he came to Christ. And he had told me many times that he thought if he was not working in this environment, that probably would not have happened. Being able to use this company to help people is the greatest sense of fulfillment. And that was Marcia Taylor. What a voice. What a life story. Three babies by 19, small town life in southern Illinois, which is like small town rural life everywhere in this great country. But it made her who she was. A really difficult first marriage, a divorce. She took a chance, moved to another state with not much money gave a shot at a company and a business she didn't even know. And my goodness, she knows it now. $500 million in business. But that's not what she's most proud of. You heard it. Keeping the people together through a recession, not laying people off, and transmitting her values through work. And it is one of the great ways we do it, folks. What we do is often who we are and what we make of it. And by the way, if you like what you hear, And want to hear more, subscribe to our podcast. Go to OurAmericanStories.com 
Again, subscribe to our podcast and let friends know about what we're doing. Help us grow this great show. Up next, Monty brings us Sean Kernan and the crazy case that included PepsiCo, a major American company, and fighter jets. That is a law school staple. Court cases are serious business. If I put this knit cap on, who am I? I'm still Johnny Cochran with a knit cap. Court cases are important. If Douglas touches Ouch. me, you will not be happy, Your Honor. I, you know what? If Douglas beats you to a pulp, I'll be delighted. Get out. And there's one court case in the 90s that was truly astounding. And no, it's not the People versus OJ. I'm talking about Leonard versus PepsiCo Inc. Here's Sean Kernan of Medium with this dramatic story of deceit, twists and turns, and contract law. In 1996, Pepsi rolled out one of its Drink Pepsi, Get Stuff campaigns. It was your usual promotion where you get points for purchases that you can later use. The TV ad targeted teenage and early 20s customers. It showed all these cool things you could win with Pepsi points. They showed a kid wearing a Pepsi t-shirt, 75 Pepsi points. He was wearing a leather jacket that was 1,450 points. He had sunglasses on that were 175 points. They then boasted, the more Pepsi you drink, the more great stuff you're going to get. Then it escalated. The commercial ends with that same kid who was wearing the leather jacket and sunglasses landing a Harrier jet in front of a school. Everyone's papers were blowing off of their desks and kids were crowding to the window to see the jet landing. And there in the courtyard is a literal Harrier with the kid in it. The jet is armed to the teeth and below it it says, Harrier fighter, seven million Pepsi points. The campaign was mostly a success as sales increased significantly but there would be an interesting twist in this promotion. A 21-year-old business student, John Leonard, saw the commercial and took a particular interest in that jet. To get the Harrier, he would need to buy millions of Pepsis. Most winning Pepsis only had one point on the label. Some had three and five, but there were no one million Pepsi point bottles. But there was a workaround. John noticed the fine print said you could buy points to get the merchandise instead. Each point was 10 cents. So for example, the 1450 point jacket cost $145. The 175 point sunglasses would cost $17.50. Notably, both items likely cost a fraction of that to make, but it was good margins and smart business. What Pepsi failed to notice was the margins on the Harrier which wasn't listed in the catalog, but was advertised in the commercial. John did some quick math and realized that the 7 million point Harrier would cost $700,000. Back in the real world, a fresh Harrier sells for north of $30 million. John Leonard found four investors who all pitched in. He then sent the check for $700,000 directly to Pepsi. His check said he wished to redeem his points for the Harrier they'd advertise in the commercial and thus began a war of letters. Pepsi's marketing team wrote back, the item you've requested is not part of the Pepsi stuff collection. It is not included in the catalog or in the order form. Only catalog merchandise can be redeemed under this program. The Harrier jet in the commercial is fanciful and is included simply to create a humorous and entertaining ad. We apologize for any misunderstanding or confusion that you may have experienced. We are including some free product coupons for your use. John Leonard was not satisfied. His lawyer wrote a response. Your letter of May 7th, 1996 is totally unacceptable. We have reviewed the videotape of the Pepsi Stuff commercial and it clearly offers a new Harrier jet for 7 million Pepsi points. Our client followed your rules explicitly. This is a formal demand that you honor your commitment and make immediate arrangements to transfer the new Harrier jet to our client. If we do not receive transfer instructions within 10 business days of the date of this letter, you will leave us with no choice but to file an appropriate action against Pepsi. Pepsi's senior marketing executive, Raymond McGovern, then jumped in with his own letter. I find it hard to believe that you are of the opinion that the Pepsi stuff commercial, quote, commercial, really offers a new Harrier jet. The use of the jet was clearly a joke that was meant to make the commercial more humorous and entertaining. 
In my opinion, no reasonable person would agree with your analysis of the commercial. This is when formal court cases started firing up. Quite comically, Pepsi had to file an official case stating they shouldn't be required to furnish a Harrier jet to John Leonard. For the next three years, this case weaved through court systems before a judge ruled in Pepsi's favor for two key reasons. One, a commercial is not a contractual offer. Two, the commercial was clearly tongue-in-cheek. No reasonable person would have thought the offer was real. Lastly, and quite humorously again, the judge added this commentary. In light of the Harrier jet's well-documented function in attacking and destroying surface-to-air targets, armed reconnaissance and air interdiction, and offensive and defensive anti-aircraft warfare, depiction of such a jet as a way to get to school in the morning is clearly not serious, even if the plaintiff contends the jet can be delivered in a form that removes its military use. Pepsi went on to amend its commercial, changing 7 million points to 700 million points. They would also add a small print to the advertisement, saying, just kidding. If there's any silver lining to all this madness, the case has now become a staple in law schools. A good majority of legal students will end up studying Leonard vs. PepsiCo Inc. as the case offers an entertaining look into the infinite gray area of contract law. All that being said, a small part of me still wishes they'd just given the guy the Harrier, or done something cool for him besides offering a few coupons. And a great job by Monty Montgomery, and just a delight to listen to, and in its own way, a kind of prank. I mean, they just wanted to see what would happen, but the idea of wrangling together $700,000 to just, well, stick it to Pepsi, just have some fun. And of course, the court stuck it right back to these folks, but they've always had this story as a result, and a great law case. And by the way, there are so many funny law cases like this that we covered in law school. If you have a story like it, send them to OurAmericanStories.com. We love a few laughs along the way. And up next, we're about to hear a great American history story that combines the arts and World War II. And all of our stories about American history are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that matter in life and all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale... Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. I learned more in their Constitution 101 class than I did in three years at the University of Virginia School of Law. The classes are that good. Again, go to hillsdale.edu. And finally, we hear from historian Roger McGrath on how Clark Gable went from playing the hero in movies to being a hero during World War II. Greg brings us the story. Clark Gable was known as the King of Hollywood. He appeared in more than 60 movies over a span of 37 years. He won the Academy Award for Best Actor for his role in It Happened One Night, the big hit of 1934. He was nominated for Best Actor two more times. He made the famous top 10 money-making stars list 16 times from 1932 through 1955. From 1934 through 1939, he ranked number two four times. In 1939, he starred as Rhett Butler in Gone with the Wind, the greatest film of the era. During the depths of the Great Depression, MGM paid him $7,500 a week, equivalent to $150,000 a week today, whether or not he was making a movie. His leading ladies were a who's who of female stars. Before World War II, they included Jean Harlow, Carol Lombard, Joan Crawford, Claudette Colbert, Myrna Loy, Loretta Young, Jeanette MacDonald, Vivian Lee, Rosalind Russell, and Lana Turner. After the war, they included Barbara Stanwyck, Deborah Carr, Ava Gardner, Jean Tierney, Sophia Loren, and Marilyn Monroe. Born William Clark Gable at home in February 1901 in Cadiz, Ohio, Gable is German on his father's side and German and Irish on his mother's. His parents come from farm families, but the father becomes a wildcat oil driller. The mother dotes on her infant son, 
but she dies when he's only 10 months old. Gable is taken to be raised by a maternal uncle and his wife on their farm. They have no children of their own and love the little Gable boy so much they want to adopt him. Gable's father refuses to allow it, thinking he will soon remarry. Two years later, the father does remarry and takes his now three-year-old son back. The new wife can't have children of her own and devotes herself to the large-for-his-age boy. Young Gable is rambunctious and loves the outdoors, especially when his father takes him hunting and fishing. Gable also spends each summer back on the uncle's farm until he's 12 years old. From then on, he has full-time jobs during the summer, usually driving wagons and delivering goods. By the time Clark Gable is 16 years old, he reaches his full height of six foot one and is 180 pounds of muscle, bone, and sinew. He is his high school baseball team's home run hitter. His towering drives land in cow pastures well beyond the outfield. Gable doesn't return to school for his senior year, though. The United States enters the Great War in Europe and manpower shortages begin to appear. Gable gets a job on the production line at the Firestone Tire Plant in Akron. Akron Tire Plants are running around the clock and the town's population grows to more than 200,000. Gable is in the big city and life is at a pace he has never experienced. It's in Akron that Gable is bitten by the acting bug. He attends a play at the Akron Music Hall and is captivated by the theme and the performances. I clapped my hands until my palms were sore, Gable later said. I'd never seen anything as wonderful in my life, which, I guess, had been pretty drab up until then. Whenever he can, Gable is at the music hall. He volunteers to be a callboy, which entails notifying actors in their dressing rooms when it's their time to go on stage. He watches and makes careful mental notes of everything. His enthusiasm is evident to everyone. When an actor playing a household servant suddenly takes sick, Gable is given the opportunity to replace him. Said Gable, I had one line, your cab is here, madam. I thought I'd die while I was waiting to go on. When I didn't fall on my face, I thought I was an actor. It was all over then, as far as my future was concerned. I never wanted to be anything else. With the end of the war and the sharp cutback on production, Akron falls on hard times. Many lose their jobs, including Gable. He struggles on with odd jobs for another year before leaving and joining his father, who is wildcat drilling in Oklahoma. His father finds him a job as an apprentice tool dresser, swinging a 16-pound sledgehammer to sharpen the cutting edges of drilling bits. After six months of daily 12-hour shifts, his muscles are bulging and he weighs 205 pounds. Even among the rugged oil field workers, Gable stands out. Tired of swinging a sledgehammer, Gable gets a job in an oil refinery, but the work is just as rugged, said Gable. I was part of an eight-man gang that cleaned out the sludge, which was almost like asphalt, from stills and storage tanks as soon as they were emptied. The interior temperature and oil fumes were so terrific that only one man would go in at a time with a rope around his waist in case he passed out. Working with a pick and shovel, you could only tolerate it for about two minutes. So you were in and out every 16 minutes throughout the 12-hour shift. I saw lots of men get a little hysterical. They started to laugh and had to be hauled out and sent home. When Gable turns 21, he comes in a small inheritance from his mother's side of the family. It's enough money to quit the oil fields and pursue acting. His father explodes when Gable tells him he's leaving. They almost come to blows and vow never to see each other again. For two years, Gable's on the road with a traveling tent show playing minor roles. The show gets stranded in Butte, Montana in a terrible blizzard, 
which forces the cancellation of the rest of its tour. Another member of the show tells Gable he has relatives in Oregon who might have work for them. The two hop a freight train and arrive in Oregon half frozen, hungry, and broke. Gable finds a job at a lumber mill, unloading logs from delivery trucks. He eventually earns enough money to make his way to Portland. In Oregon's big city, he strings wire for a telephone company, is briefly engaged to actress Frances Dorfler, and appears on stage with the Astoria Players. Gable's life changes dramatically when he meets Josephine Dillon, a former Broadway actress who is opening an acting studio in Portland. Within weeks, Gable is not only Dylan's star student, but also living with her. He is 23 and she is 39. However, the relationship is not sexual. Dylan is fascinated by the prospect of turning Clark Gable, who she sees as a diamond in the rough, into not just a good actor, but a star. After a year of working with Gable, often to the neglect of her other students, Dylan decides to relocate to Los Angeles and establishes an acting studio in Hollywood. Gable arrives in Hollywood no longer an awkward novice, but a fairly competent actor. He also has acquired a degree of refinement and sophistication to go along with his natural personal charm. To avoid scandal concerning the relationship, Gable and Dylan agree to a marriage of convenience. For the next several years, Gable appears in minor roles in movies, but in ever greater roles in the theater. He goes on the road with several different productions, and it's here he hones his acting chops until critics begin to take notice of him. He plays a great variety of characters, from a big city newspaper reporter to an innocent, naive sailor to a ruthless gangster. He even sings and dances in a musical comedy. After his performance as the male lead in Eugene O'Neill's Pulitzer Prize-winning play, Anna Christie, a critic says of Gable, he took the spotlight early in the play and, through the character's ready wit and wisdom, kept the audience in an uproar from the opening scene to the final curtain. Rave reviews confirm Gable's progress as an actor, but something else is happening that portends his future stardom. Dozens of women are at the stage door waiting for him to leave the theater at each of his appearances. Clark Gable's first significant movie role comes in The Painted Desert, released in 1931. By the end of 1931, he appears in 10 more films and moves from supporting roles to leading man. 1932 sees Gable as the male lead in four major motion pictures. His leading ladies are the greatest female stars of the day. He's making 2,000 a week, something like 40,000 a week today, and the nation is in the depths of the Great Depression. His star continues to rise through 1933 and 34, and his salary is doubled. It will double again. His movies are box office and critical successes, especially It Happened One Night, which wins five Academy Awards, including Best Picture. Gable wins the Oscar for Best Actor. Still with me, Brett? Ah, don't be a sucker. Good night's rest will do you a lot of good. Besides, you got nothing to worry about. The walls of Jericho will protect you from the big bad wolf. Secretaries find it difficult to keep up with his fan mail, and his hit movies continue. China Seas, Call of the Wild, Mutiny on the Bounty, San Francisco, Test Pilot, Too Hot to Handle, Gone with the Wind. Red, 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 you go. Where shall I go? What shall I do? Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Women, money, cars, homes are his. Clark Gable is the king of Hollywood. I can't let him go. I can't. 
That must be some way to bring him back. In 1939, Gable marries the love of his life, Carol Lombard. He continues to star in movies, and so too does Lombard, until the Japanese sneak attack on Pearl Harbor throws the United States into World War II. A patriot, Lombard raises money for the war by going on a bond tour. On a return to Los Angeles, though, the plane she is on crashes into a mountain in Nevada with the loss of all on board. Devastated, Gable spends weeks swilling whiskey, but sobers up and completes a movie for MGM. Against the strong objections of the studio bosses, the 41-year-old king of Hollywood now enlists as a private in the Army Air Corps. I don't want to sell bonds, declares Gable. I don't want to make speeches, and I don't want to entertain. I just want to be sent where the going is tough. Because of his age, commanding presence, and experience, Gable is accepted for officer's candidate school. He's ordered to report to a camp at Miami, Florida for a 13-week officer's course. He travels by train, and wherever the train stops, women by the hundreds are there waiting. When Gable asks to change trains in New Orleans, a crowd of 5,000 female fans makes it impossible for him to catch his connecting train. He arrives in Miami a day late. For all his heavy smoking and drinking, Gable's in excellent condition. His build and prowess impress the other candidates, but most of them keep their distance, thinking Gable must have an awfully high opinion of himself. Sensing the tension, Gable removes his false teeth and waves them at the other men. Look at the King of Hollywood, he says. Sure looks like the Jack now, doesn't he? Everyone laughs, and Gable is suddenly just one of the guys. Physically, Gable sails through OCS, outperforming men half his age. Academically, the high school dropout struggles until he decides to treat classroom material like a movie script. While other candidates are sleeping at night, he sits in a lighted latrine and memorizes page after page of subject matter until he can recite the material. He finishes OCS in the top one quarter of his class and, at the request of the other candidates, delivers the graduation address. After commissioning, Gable spends several more months training at gunnery schools. Having spent years hunting and shooting skeet, he excels as a gunner and is promoted to first lieutenant by the end of January 1943. There's no question that Gable will be a top aerial gunner, but the War Department and the Army also want him to make training films with footage from actual combat. After more training, Gable is deployed with the 351st Bomb Group to Polebrook, England, some 80 miles north of London. His arrival in April 1943 is first announced by German radio broadcasts, which say he will be welcomed in Germany when his plane is shot down. Hitler has a large collection of American films and has stated more than once his favorite Hollywood actor is Clark Gable. German Air Minister Hermann Göring announces that any pilot who shoots down Gable's plane will receive the equivalent of $5,000, something like $100,000 today. If Gable survives the shoot down and is captured, the German pilot will also be promoted and given a paid vacation. Exactly how many combat missions Clark Gable flies is not known because he is not a regular crew member for any particular bomber, but simply climbs aboard whenever he can to shoot aerial footage or serve as a replacement for a wounded aerial gunner. The logbooks record Gable on five missions, but he probably flies more than 20. His commanding officer, Colonel William Hatcher, says, the damn fool insists on being a rear gunner on every mission. Gable's first officially recorded combat mission comes in May 1943. He's aboard a B-17 
on a bombing raid, targeting factories in German-occupied Belgium. Besides filming, he also serves as a gunner. Not wanting to diminish his dexterity for camera work, he wears light lever gloves and suffers frostbite. Two B-17s are shot down and others sustain damage. His second mission takes him to a German airfield in France, but clouds are obscuring the target and the B-17s cannot drop their bombs. German fighters, though, come up through the clouds to attack the American bombers. Several sustain damage, but none are lost. Gable's third mission targets chemical plants in German-occupied Norway. It's the longest flight for the 8th Air Force yet. Two B-17s suffer damage from flak. His fourth mission is almost his last. The target is a synthetic oil plant in Germany's Ruhr Valley. In a massive air raid by several bomb groups, 300 planes participate. 25 American bombers are shot down and double that number badly damaged. Many men are killed or wounded. In the midst of the battle, Gable wedges himself behind the top turret gunner to film German fighters as they make passes at the American bomber, which is named Eat It Gruesome. Bursts of machine gun fire rip into the B-17, and then a 20-millimeter shell comes up through the top turret, but miraculously doesn't explode. The shell rips through the heel of Gable's boot and then misses his head by inches. Although shot full of holes, ain't it gruesome, makes it back to base. When reporters see Gable with a mangled boot and ask him how it happened, Gable says, I didn't know it happened. I didn't know anything about it until we had dropped 11,000 feet and could get off oxygen and look around. Only then did I see the hole in the turret. Gable's next mission targets a shipping port used by the Germans on the coast of France. The American bombers are jumped by German fighters and suffer extensive damage. When the nose gunner in Gable's B-17 is wounded, Gable takes his place. Between missions, Gable heads to the MGM offices in London and screens footage that he and other members of his film unit have shot. He also visits David Niffen, who is now in the British Army and stationed near London, but living in a house off base. I came home one night, said Niven, to find a large American Air Force officer sitting in my chair. On his knee was my son. Serving him from my last bottle of whiskey was my wife. It was a great reunion. He became devoted to my family, always showing up with unheard of goodies, such as concentrated orange juice and nylons from the bountiful American PX. Back at the 351st Bomb Group, Gable rides a motorcycle around the base and becomes acquainted with everyone from privates to colonels. He writes letters of condolence to families of his fellow airmen who die and regularly visits patients in the base hospital. Clark Gable was a human with a heart, said a sergeant. When Bob Hope and his troop came to the base to put on an outdoor show, there were thousands of guys in the audience with Clark tucked in there somewhere. Hope stood at the mic, trying his damnedest to get Clark on the stage. Hope kept joking, I know there's a celebrity out there, where is he? But he couldn't get him to even stand up. The guys laughed, and some sitting near Clark shouted, here, and started to applaud and whistle. Clark half got up, smiled, and gave half a wave, and then put his head down. The applause and whistling went on. Gee, it must have been for 10 minutes. Everybody thought it was great. In October 1943, Gable is awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross and the Air Medal. He's ordered home, arriving in November with 50,000 feet of film. He's stationed at Hal Roach Studios in Culver City, now used by the Army Signal Corps for the production of training and recruiting films. The studios are nicknamed Fort Roach. Also serving at Fort Roach is Captain Ronald Reagan. Gable works on turning his 50,000 feet of footage into training films. 
visits military hospitals and makes appearances at war bond rallies. By May 1944, he's finished with his film projects and is promoted to major. He now hopes for an assignment to the Pacific theater of the war. When he learns the Army will not allow him in combat again, he requests a discharge and is separated from active duty in mid-June. Gable doesn't return to making movies until the war is over in Europe and nearly over in the Pacific, saying he's uncomfortable doing so when men are still dying in combat. He stars in 22 movies following World War II. Because of his movies, most people today still know of Clark Gable, the actor. What they don't know is that he left his life as the king of Hollywood to play his greatest role, a real-life role, as Captain Clark Gable, an aerial gunner in a B-17 facing German fighters in the skies over Europe. And great work by Roger McGrath. And he does great work for us regularly. And he's one of our most regular contributors. And by the way, McGrath is a U.S. Marine. And I don't say former because once a Marine, always a Marine. And you could tell there was a special connection to the material. Clark Gable's greatest role of his life, playing Captain Clark Gable himself in war, an aerial gunner for B-17s. I mean, imagine that Herman Goring put a bounty on Clark Gable's head. And you could imagine what that would have done to rally the troops in Germany, capturing this great star. And I just love that quote from one of his commanders. The damn fool insists on being a rear gunner on every mission. And that tells you everything you need to know about Clark Gable. When he's in, he's in all the way. And by the way, if you missed it, listen to our last podcast where we tell the stories of the Louisiana Purchase, the Salt and Pepper Shaker Museum found in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, and how an undercover agent infiltrated the KKK and with the help of Superman, exposed them to the world. Thanks again for listening. I'm Lee Habib, and this is the Our American Stories Podcast.